Welcome to the 23rd episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We're here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about modern and not-so-modern programming languages and some of the benefits they afford us. So I guess I'll start off again. Um, Last week's episode, uh, we bashed pretty hard about um, trying to build a stable platform that was both stable and secure, to the point of suggesting that folks use non-Linux operating systems, which is definitely something that I've been curious about and wanted to spend some time with because they're fascinating to me. But also something I'm is is very new to me and I don't have a lot of experience with. And of course, this also um, asks the question: um, that style of operations is pretty hard right in the scale of of the DevOps uh, scale with operations on one side and devs in the on the other. Um, and Deploying a non-Linux, very stripped-down system ends up um, providing a platform that is exceedingly limited and probably very frustrating to uh, the developers that we support whose uh, code that we build a platform for. Um, and I definitely wanted to get back more to the the DevOps uh, side of the discussion where we talk about the practicality of we can't have exactly what we want um but we but we have to work together to actually build a platform that actually works for all of us even if it does have a network accessible init daemon well gentlemen so one of the one of the common issues is one side losing sight of the other in terms of development and operations and as our fields merge closer and closer together, we need to keep in sight the the end goal of this is to be shipping quality software on supportable systems to end users either via cloud service or in real life or however it actually works. So some of the practicalities of running writing code that runs in many places reliably and testably and well is really important. Yeah, and I'll... Uh... I know I was bashing, or I guess I wasn't bashing Docker too hard last week, but I, I definitely was like a little bit on the down, downward slope with them. But I will have to say Docker as a company is kind of killing it in terms of continuously iterating and releasing on a product. And uh, while I may not always agree with their decisions or be happy from a sysadmin or an operations standpoint of view, from a developer point of view or a customer's point of view, the the quick iteration that they are doing is uh, fascinating, um, and I th- I have to believe that part of the reason they're able to do that is one of the the programming language they chose, which was Go. Um, I just I have to believe that part of that plays into that, uh, and I think that speaks to Go's flexibility and. Uh, uh, ease of use coding wise, as well as being a statically typed language and you know distributed across multiple operating systems. Docker has built an amazing community, and they have. When you say container, people think Docker and their logo of the the shipping containers, which is is really quite fascinating and powerful, and shows what a really fantastic job they've done at that. 
um, there are few places that aren't deploying um, stuff in a where they deploy containers that's not Docker. Um, I know the client I'm working with is migrating to running Docker on Aurora. Um, so, yeah, that's incredibly popular, and they've done a lot of things right. Um, and I started so much with uh, uh, a bashing systems D, which just has such an awesome reputation. But the other side of that reputation is um, systems D and the folks supporting that process and project have done an incredible amount of work in no small terms whatsoever to unify many of the Linux distributions. Um, you know, things like configuring your network device. It's different on every single Linux distribution. Um, it's one of the things I like about how Ubuntu uh, works. I like how they manage their interfaces. Um, even though I've grown up on Red Hat. Um, but really, uh, we're looking at a future where every distribution um, is has their network configuration handled the same way. Um, where every distribution natively supports containers the same way. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of power there. Systemd also brings a lot of the the powerful ordering semantics that came out of um, launch control on OS 10 and the SMF stuff on SVCADM on Solaris and lets developers in Linux actually use it in a real and supportable way and have complex dependency chains that come up quickly and restart services when things change and do other other things that used to take a lot of mucking and it's gotten it handles the dependency problem in code which is is new to the Linux world um upstart used to be the what everyone was cheering for and i i really liked upstart um uh, because i thought its configuration uh unit whatever you call its configuration language was really quite elegant um i don't so much find the ini style of systems d that elegant um but with upstart you still had to specify dependencies manually by hand that's the big problem that they never solved and was really a core issue with with that init system which is what has swayed a lot of people to be very pro systems d which does that in code getting back to languages i've not done as much go coding as the two of you have but i really like what i've seen so far in terms of portability and supportability from various developer platforms and different os's and different runtimes and it was it struck me that i was I was trying to compile Nomad, which is HashiCorp's Docker container management solution. And I, I came from an OS 10 box where I compiled it, and I went to an ARM-based Raspberry Pi running um, one of the, the Debian flavors. It compiled just fine, joined the cluster just fine. It was all happy and, and running. And it was the same code base, and it was and pretty... It compiled with like one command. Yeah, and it was repeatable, it was simple, it was obvious to anybody who's trying to test this and set this up that this is how you do it. This is the right way to do it. You know that the tests are going to run and they're going to pass and you're going to have, at the other end of the pipeline, you're going to have a workable system. A lot of folks have appreciated Python over the years for um, it being a little bit on the opinionated side um, and having a pretty strong mindset of of how to develop code and how to write code in a, a Pythonic uh, style. Uh, and Python's gone really far into um, 
letting us have a, a language we can use on the operation side of the house. That's the same language uh, developers can easily use and work together well and really push forward the state of the art. Um, but Python is, it's kind of long in the tooth at this point. Um, one of the really telling uh, bits about Python is if you look at the HTTP lib uh, modules in the standard library, you can really tell that those were designed way before uh, REST-style uh, APIs and interfaces were a thing. Um, and so Python has definitely um, struggled um, and succeeded in some ways uh, to be better there. Uh, there's uh, other options like the Python requests module. Um, but Go has been designed um, from the beginning um, as a sort of web-aware uh, language that's still very, very new. And so a lot of those design choices have been built into the language, and which has made it really powerful for for doing what we know and love with Python very easily um, and combining some of the low-levelness that we get with C and some of the control aspects there and of just simply being able to produce much more scalable systems. My frustration with Go, um, as I find that balance on the DevOps you know, a spectrum is, and no one can see my hand gestures. This is so sad. Um, but sometimes I really have whiplash with Go. Uh, some of the bits are are really very C-like type languages, having to define variables instead of just assign a value to them. Um, and on the other side of that, there are some very high-level constructs um, Go 1.7 added the contexts um, library that's uh, that Google has written and been around for a few years at this point. And that's really handy, but the whiplash between high-level and low-level stuff is has caught me off guard a couple times. Yeah, and I, I think one of the reasons why Python at least has, has been very popular both uh, on the on the dev side, especially on the system side, is because it really helped that both Red Hat and uh, Canonical uh, behind Ubuntu both kind of used uh, Python for their uh, system scripts. Um, any kind of uh, scripts that they needed to write uh, were mostly in Python, and so that meant Python libraries were packaged very well across both distributions. Uh, I totally agree. The same Python be. became the language the installer was written in, the language that all the package dependency and, and management was written in. That was that was a boon for the language, left, right, and sideways. Exactly. And the same couldn't be said for something like Ruby. And and part of that is Ruby's own fault for updating so quickly uh, that, that packagers and maintainers just got frustrated with it. But it wasn't as simple to get Ruby running uh, than Python, because Python was already there, usually included by default. And then, again, if you needed a library, chances are it was there. And if it wasn't already up to date, either in Apple or uh, one of the testing uh, repositories for Ubuntu, it was already there. So the ubiquitiness of Python really helped, I think, explode it. But at this point now, you have the 2-3 split that is still going on, Whereas with Ruby, they've they just pulled the bandaid off at each time, and and I think Ruby on Rails has helped push that because it, they adopt uh, the new versions of 
uh, Ruby very quickly. And for example, the latest version of Ruby of Rails 5 only supports the newest version of Ruby. And part of that's because they're using some of the new uh, features uh, in the language to help memory uh, usage. But again, the, the, the largest framework user on, on Ruby forces the newest language version. Whereas with Python, you don't see uh, Django doing that or some of the other larger frameworks or uh, popular libraries. Yeah, the Python split is is kind of sad for me. I And I think of all the Python 2x code that I've written at a former job, and who's there to port that forward? What about the code I've got now where I've got other things, other more important things to accomplish? And Go um, iterates pretty quickly if you pay attention as well, um, about every six months. And they have policy that their releases must adhere to um, and good guidance from uh, the fine folks at Google. And that has kept the uh, Go upgrades coming at a pretty reasonable clip, yet they're all very easily compatible with each other. There's very little issues moving from 1.6 to 1.7. Um, what what concerns me is that there will be a 2x, there will be a 3x of Go. Um, there will be language changes at some point. And if you if you search the Golang website, you can't pull up the old documentation. You can only see the current documentation. So they definitely also have that push of making sure that you're running the current version of Go, which may or may not be feasible in in all in all situations, as each person sort of finds their balance on that on that spectrum. Well. The only the, the the difference there, though, the only I guess the only big difference is is that you only have to maintain the developer's environment. You, once you compile it, it's distributable. You aren't having to keep up the same libraries, the same versions distributed on eat on on your server side. So, while I, I, I the documentation part really does annoy me because that that if you're yeah, using I was some older cold documentation today, and yeah bugged. that. That's ridiculous, but it's not as painful in Go as it is like with Ruby or Python, just because you don't have to match the same environment that you have on, on your dev box that you do in production. And Go sort of follows the same uh, methodology as using a container. Um, they're static binaries, so as long as you're running an x86 Linux system, you just pick up the binary and ship it. Um. But all of the libraries and dependencies that it needs are, of course, linked in. So if there's a security issue, you have to somehow magically know what to go and rebuild. Um, the same thing with containers. If there's a security issue somewhere in that container, you've got to somehow figure out what needs rebuilding and redeploying, which is not always an easy task. Well, this no, is where no. you rely on your, your build system itself, your, your, your build pipeline to flag and identify that, oh, OpenSSL has been patched yet again, it's time to, what or whatever this, the library is, and then to trigger another build of the, the top-level package because of that. And I grew up in such a culture of, of there's a new RPM update, we've got to make sure this RPM update is pushed everywhere, and the dependency mechanisms around that, don't get me started, um, and yeah, now really that entire environment has changed, and the the problem is 
tracking those dependencies in containers. And uh, once again, we don't have that solved well. Um, can we solve it better than RPM and Debian's? Yes. I, I think so. And, and <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the build aspect of it, Brendan, because I think that's, that's in my opinion, one, better, but two, it, it makes it a little more visible and also easier to manage. Because then, uh, like, for example, Ruby on Rails has a, well, I guess it's not Ruby on Rails. I guess it's it, it's targeted Ruby on Rails, but it's it's a it's a Ruby gem that takes a look at all the gems that are in your gem file and then lets you know if there's a new version for something or something's out of date. And you could do the same thing theoretically. I, I don't know if something exists right now for Docker or not, but you could easily build something like that and bake it into your build system so that when you're building your version, you'd be like, hey, there's this or this, there's that that's out of date. And, and the reason I like that too is because it forces you to start iterating and building more often. It's just like, you know, it used to server uptime in the hundreds or thousands of days was looked as a, as a badge of honor. And now all I can think of is like, my goodness, how many, how many patches have you not applied? How many, how many kernel updates have you not applied now just because you haven't rebooted in, in so many days. Whereas if you have to uh, build your app or deploy your app each time to pick those up, that's just another encouragement to force you to be nimble in that. And, and I think that's only a good thing. Another good thing that came out of the history of Ruby, from what I understand, is Ruby was one of the early languages to really embrace the test-driven development framework or methodology. So they have a very rich framework and language for expressing tests and mocking out tests. So you can write your test before you develop and then develop into the tests. And then you know when your code is passing that you're ready to ship. And this helps you with upgraded modules saying, oh, well, now my tests are failing. The output, the, the behavior that I'm expecting is no longer working. So something must be wrong. Something is broken here. A lot of other languages, Python and others, don't have the same culture and the same history of testing. So it's harder to get those bootstrapped. It's very, very easy with Ruby to, to start with a testing environment and testing framework and come up to speed very quickly on it. And Go has a pretty... Uh, good built-in culture of testing. One of the things that annoys me about folks that uh, do Go applications is when they have to come up with some new testing, uh, unit testing framework because they don't like the built-in one. Uh, I find the built-in one simple and really powerful and you know it's there and you know it works. Um, Another thing I wanted to mention while we're kind of on this topic is um, Chef's new Habitat project, which we should include in the show notes, um, which is a container building Nix-alike sort of solution, Um, also is specifically tooled to expose the dependencies of each um, artifact that it builds and tries to actually tackle the problem of being able to query, does this artifact depend upon SSL? Does it need to be rebuilt because of the most recent open SSL fiasco? Well, even better, you're able to look through all of the applications deployed via Habitat and say, I need to know everything that uses SSL in any way and make sure that it passes a certain suite of tests. And you can say, oh, well, all the things that link off of SSL, be it open SSL or LibreSSL or whatever, the boring SSL, 
you now have a list of all of them very easily. You know what versions they are. You know where they're deployed. It's it gives you visibility in a cross section that you used to have to run really crazy database systems like um, Red Hat had a add-on to Satellite. I think that did that for a while, where you could you could harvest the the installed libraries and all the machines, and you could get a live lookup or relatively live of all the things installed. And this does the same, but in a in a live and dynamic way for your applications themselves. For the actual containers. So that was that's definitely an interesting feature I found about Habitat. I'm I don't know what to think that all of its package building and hooks of that nature are are bash. I'm not sure how I feel about that. But that's a different episode. Alright, where do we go from here? More languages? I'm trying to avoid just the language bashing, which is what we'll get to if we get into Perl or JavaScript, because I don't have a lot of nice things to say about those languages. I know that some of my uh, frustrations with uh, Go and Python and just me being an operations person has encouraged me to to look at C again, uh, since it's the language I used to program in of your um, and it's not a language that changes much. Um, it's a language that's known for its stability and for performance. Because um, I'm definitely in a situation with my current client where scalability and performance are, are very large concerns. Um, but um, even though there's some really interesting projects that are in C that I've been following of late, um, uh, Sarconis has released a couple interesting projects, um, FQ and JLog, um, as far as doing uh, brokered meshes queuing that look really powerful. Um, but yeah, they're in C. Um, so that comes with... <laughs> C is not a hipster language. There's not a lot of fancy REST frameworks to to build REST API applications in C. Um, and yeah, that probably takes me way back to the operations side of our spectrum. And there's also very few safety guidelines in C. C basically hands you a double-barreled shotgun for memory management and points it at your face and says, good luck. C hands you the gift of never having to deal with garbage collection. <laughs> That's a much nicer way of saying it. You either can garbage collect poorly, or you can do it right. And if you do it poorly, everyone will know. <laughs> C has a bad rap for uh, security stuff. And the uh, most recent C11 um, changes to the C standard um, actually address and finally deprecate some of the uh, some of those egregious sins. Um GitS uh, was the uh, famous uh, standard library call that read a string from uh, standard in, and you passed it a buffer, and that was it. There was no way to pass it the length of the buffer you had allocated. Um, so a cheer for C11 there. But yeah, they're uh, programming... With reasonable security in C is, is definitely something to be aware of if that's your your ball of wax, as you can get into trouble there pretty quickly. 
All right, Jared, your turn. I just, I wish I could comment on C. I, uh, my first language was PHP, and then I quickly moved over to Ruby. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I mean, it was just because the web was, or programming on the web was was the hot thing when I was starting to learn programming. Or and getting into computers and uh, PHP was the one of the most popular languages at the time. Um, I mean, when I got started with Rails, it was either the late one two release or right when they changed it over to two o when I started with it. Um, so it was still very very young. I mean, this was before they even had Bundler. This is before um, Merb came about and then the the merge with them. Um, so, uh, root rails in the early days was while still freeing was also still painful. Um, but yeah, I, I mainly have dealt with dynamically typed languages and, and trying to learn go and statically typed languages language is not been fun coming from that kind of a background. So I have no formal training in programming languages, unfortunately, and I've never really been able to write C. I can kind of read it, but it, it it's a lot of work. I find Go refreshing and wonderful as compared. Um, I can even write some Go, which is which is nice. I I came up in the Perl days when Perl was kind of the it was it was waning in Perl's hotness, but Perl was still the hotness. And if you wanted a string processing language or you wanted to manipulate large text files or those sorts of things, Perl was amazing. It's just not it's not there anymore. It's kind of fallen behind for lots of good reasons. It has all the disadvantages of um, the memory issues that, that other other languages have had. It's not fast. It is clunky. No, I'm sorry. I wasn't going to talk about that. <laughs> Pushing Brendan's buttons. Yeah. Uh, the one of the frustrations I've been sort of working through is uh, I love Python and I had a lot of experience with um, dynamically typed and interpreted languages and. There comes a point, scalability performance-wise, where an interpreted language just doesn't cut it anymore. Um, which is why I started looking at Go a couple years ago at this point, which is kind of scary. Um, and you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about Go is that it it's pretty heavy-handed about forcing you to deal with your errors, which makes really solid code. Um, it's a design choice that I think makes the applications produced by the language of higher quality than than applications produced in other languages. And that that's also one of those uh, DevOps sort of balancing things. Um, I know that one of the things that a lot of people don't like about Go is the constant if error equals nil or if error doesn't equal nil. Um, and that can be a little more verbose than uh, a lot of folks that come from sort of a Ruby background are used to. Yeah, that was, that was a, sh- I guess I wouldn't say shock, but it definitely was like, man, this feels really repetitive that I'm having to do this all the time versus just uh, trying or uh, rescue uh, from either Python or, or Rails or Ruby, excuse me. Um, so yeah, that, that was definitely a, a shock to me. And then obviously, having to just deal with types and passing those to different functions and having to th- really think about what the object was that I was dealing with. Cause to me, 
you know, in Ruby, a, a class is a if you're if you're if you're turning a, a a hash or a map or whatever, you don't have to worry about what class it's coming from. I mean, who cares? It's it's a map. But when you start coming over into the Go Go world, it's a little different, and uh, that's that's probably been the hardest thing for me. Yeah, you can tell I'm. I don't know. There's got to be some derogatory term uh, for what I'm about to say, but one of the things that always annoys me with programming and finding that balance is dealing with exceptions. Um, I, I've i always written code that dealt with errors and returned error conditioned and tried to recover from error conditions. And having that second option that kind of blows things up in the middle um, has always has never felt very comfortable with me. I've programmed in lots of object-oriented languages. I've done the whole exceptions thing. Um, but yeah, I keep going back to um, coding patterns you might find in C or Pascal or in coding patterns that, that Go supports, even if Go has a couple exception-esque um, options in it. I, I very much like the idea of, of, I failed, here's my error, handle it appropriately. So where do you, our listener, all one of you, where do you find your DevOps balance? How do you find the the, the point between having a stable uh, environment that's well supported, that's secure, uh, while letting your operation, well, your developer folks, um, do what they need to do to push out new code and make money for the company and iterate quickly? Uh, that's the core of the DevOps um, movement um, to me is that there's really is this constant struggle between operations folks like us who are very focused on building a stable environment and developers who want to be able to push out the newest features to their customers because I know we all like our shiny. I think we all have iPhones. Um, so, yeah. Uh, send us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you in the comments on our website at operations.fm or perhaps through email at feedback at operations.fm or uh, hit us up on Twitter at operations.fm. Additionally, if you like the show, please take the time to rate it in iTunes. It's the easiest way for us to get new listeners and to spread the love with the rest of the community. That wraps it up for the 23rd episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. We have been Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thank you, and good night.